0: want to say thanks to Caitlin and Ben from Homestead Collective. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Back with us again, and uh, hope and pray it's not the last time for sure. Thank you. And it's so good to see you on this holiday weekend. Um, that beautiful song thank you for singing so well and it talks about the cross and the crown today we wrap up the letter of first peter it's been a great experience at least for me to prepare some sermons and to listen to them all and to hopefully soak in the message of what god is teaching us you know our title is strangers loving From the margins. Today, I'd like to talk about strangers in the J curve. So hang on, I'll explain what that means in just a minute. If you woke up this morning, you saw that the hurricane is now category five, headed somewhere, sometime, in some way. those kind of experiences are kind of regular for the fall season, right? It's called hurricane season. When you think about life, that's that's maybe your life as well, right? Um, maybe you feel like you're living in Hurricane Alley, where it's not just one, but it's been multiple blasts against you and you, your own either body or your soul or your family or your friends, and you just say, Will it end? Uh, This past week at our weekly staff meeting, we have one every week, our ministry directors got together, and instead of talking about maybe what's coming, which we always do, we said, let's just stop for a minute and see how your summer has been going and how are you. And as we went around and shared about, uh, what, six or eight of us, it seems like two-thirds of us had stories that were very difficult to share and to listen to. Stories of either personal suffering or friends who are suffering. And, and uh, you know, it's the kind of thing you say, is that the norm instead of the exception? You know, we, we think of this window of, hurricane season, which we're in now, but it ends. Then you don't have to worry about hurricanes, at least in this part of the world, until it starts up again next, what is it, September? When you think about suffering, a few weeks ago, we looked at Peter and talked about, if you want to call it three different kinds of suffering. I don't have to say much about what it is, but if if you just step back for a minute and think, You know, some things we get, some things in life are our fault. If I um, hit my finger with a hammer, uh, it's my silly fault for doing it. But it still hurts. Uh, If you um, um, don't study for an exam, I can say this now that college is here. uh, Welcome, or at least it's almost, school's back for almost everybody. And it will be soon. So if you don't study and you fail, well, that's your fault, not the teacher's. Or if you have poor job performance and get docked and pay or fired, you have no one to blame but yourself. So that's a certain level of suffering we bring on ourselves. And Peter tells us in the book, look, we all do that, but that's not really Christian suffering. Um, you need to own that and do your best to avoid that. But there, there, there's two other layers of suffering, and I guess I could call it, if I call it, undeserved suffering. This is when maybe you have a boss that you work for that is just impossible to please, and it seems like anything you do is never enough. Or if you're on the other side, you have employees that are just impossible to work with, and you wonder. Are they even listening, and how can I manage them better? And you're stuck there because you're in the middle. You just have to deal with them. Or maybe you have cancer or some sort of physical issue in your body. I mean, we all do in different ways and in different times. But it's not necessarily your fault. You're just getting older. Or we might say it's in your genes, right? Sometimes some people suffer from being a victim of someone else's abuse. Or sometimes maybe the truck just slammed into you because your car was there at that time and there was nothing you could do to avoid the wreck. So let's just call that living in a fallen world, we experience undeserved suffering that we don't we couldn't prevent and for sure we wouldn't want and then there's that third layer of suffering that Peter talks about that not too many of us have experienced which if I call it Christian suffering I mean it's because you are a Christian and that's the reason that's what the Bible would call persecution Um, we get it in mild ways so maybe your skipped over at an invitation to a party because they know that you're going to kind of be a spoiler because you're a christian or maybe you're skipped over in a job promotion because that promotion requires that you cut corners or cook the books or wine and dine people that are against your values as a christian or maybe you have you have broken a relationship or someone else has maybe a serious relationship because of your christian standards what I'm not talking about is what we hear about in other countries where people are forcibly punished, jailed, or beaten, or you know, in, a, in some other way physically attacked because of their Christian uh, testimony. But that's the world we live in. And I'm, I'm saying today because Peter concludes his letter with this reminder that suffering is the norm. It's not something, and believe me, I, <laughs> you'd think I'd learn this by now, but I still think the norm is manage, manageable life, not the constant turmoil. I don't know if I was raised that way, or it's probably society's message that if you have a headache, you take a painkiller, and if you have an itch, you scratch it with buying something to get rid of the angst in you. Do you you know what I mean? We're all after that good, calm, peaceable life. And Peter comes in here at the end of his letter and says, you know what? Not yet. He doesn't say no. He says not yet. So today we're going to wrap this up at our, we call it our church family service. This is actually our last time, uh, for this while, having our our children with us in this service, and uh, not that you're not welcome at any other service, but starting next month, in the first Sunday in October, we're going to have classes for everyone. So um, let's let's read the scripture here, and then I want to highlight something about what what someone calls the J curve. So. Follow me now in your copy of the scriptures or on the screen, the end of Peter's letter. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace, peace, to all of you who are in christ the way he ends his letter and so what i want to do is remind us of the pattern that, that he shows us here uh, first of all he says something about our gracious god our gracious god well everything starts with god in our lives he is called here the god of all grace in other words um anything that we have from god anything is a gift you know joe was talking about this marvelous privilege of just being alive today think about it now think about it you, did you hear that little static okay all right don't worry about it um Think about this, though, not static. Think about your heart, Joe, 100,000 times a day, and you don't make it happen. So where did that come from? Or when you're sleeping, your lungs breathe. You don't have to set a timer and say, wake up at 2.30 in the morning and remember to breathe a few times. to keep going. You see? well, where did that come from? Who invented that? Well, you have either two choices. Either it just happened to happen, Or God designed it that way. That's just one little way of saying the God who is a God in heaven beyond us is both creator and gracious giver of all things. He is the God of all grace. And it says that he calls you, which implies that you may be an image-bearer of God, and alienated, separated from God. So God has to call you back to himself. That's the beautiful picture of what the Bible calls redemption. He started it with Adam and Eve. Where are you? And he called them back to himself. And if you're like me, some of you when you were little, You could hear the voice of God calling you back to himself. Others of you, later in life. Some of you, you still haven't turned around yet. The Bible calls that repentance. But God is calling. God is calling everyone generally from the twinkling stars at night that are his handwriting to the voice of God that like a hook gets a hold of you and starts to pull you toward himself. That's what theologians call the effectual call. In other words, God really calls us and he never lets us go. And once he does that, we get called to not just a moment, not just a day, but an eternal glory. That's what's, waiting for us, that new creation where we have new bodies on a new earth with complete holiness and full joy forever and ever and ever. That's our hope. And once that happens, once God calls us, Peter says, Paul says, we become in Christ. It's very simple to write it, two words, but how profound is this? In Christ. And he ends the letter, the last two words. He could have said, peace to all of you who are at the church, or peace to all of you who are believers. But the shorthand way of saying a believer is somebody who is wrapped up inside of Christ, united to him. Maybe like we might say, well, you know, I got a friend and he is into sports. You know, he wears the stuff, he talks this way. His whole life is watching, re-watching, going if he can. He's in sports or she's in music or something like that, right? Their whole life is wrapped up in it. Now, that's a thing, but it's not a person. And this is, this is Peter's way of saying this is who we are. The other thing he says, when he says, God, who called you, will keep you, he says that in the meantime, we suffer. And he doesn't say meantime, though. Do you see what he says? He says, it's just a little while. Now, if you read that, you might think, well, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean um, a few hours or a couple weeks? Or maybe a year? No, no, because he uses this back in chapter 1 as well, and it's used throughout the New Testament to describe the current life that we live now in comparison with the life that will be one day. We're only here like a soap bubble. You like to play with soap bubbles? (laughs) I was with some people this week, and... There were four little ones that were, could we say, not very well behaved. And um, suddenly, this person took out of his pocket, I don't know where he got it, looked like one of those little wedding things that you blow bubbles with. And he starts going, and all these little bubbles, you know, dozens of them start floating. And all the kids suddenly became one in trying to catch a bubble. And of course, the fun thing about bubbles is, as soon as you think you got it, you don't. And the Bible says our lives now are like soap bubbles. The book of Ecclesiastes says it that way. It's like chasing after wind. A little perspective there. Our earthly life is short, and it's always marked by suffering. The third promise goes back to the first promise. God called us to his glory and he will make sure we get there. He will restore us. He and, and he uses four verbs here as if he's trying to really say it. He's going to restore us and strengthen us and make us firm and steadfast. That's our promise from our covenant-keeping God that we hold on to. Revelation 21 says, God's dwelling place is now among the people. This is in the new earth. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The soap bubble order of things will one day be gone. Hallelujah our God of grace will restore us someday now this um this present pattern of suffering now future glory later that what do you what do you call that well um only well, to show you Um, picture here. We had baptisms here a few weeks ago, right? You've seen it before if you missed it. And when John did the baptisms, he reminded us that this is not just, you know, washing your skin in water, so to speak, but there's something symbolic here. It's, It's someone who dies underwater, In the Bible, the water is not the place where you want to go take a vacation. It's where you stay away from, lest you drown. And when we, we, as Christians, come to God when he calls us, we die. And what a picture. We stay under the water, so to speak. But we don't die physically. That water washes us, and we come out different. We rise. This picture of death, burial, resurrection, is is what cements us, glues us into Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. All right, you with me on the concept? Are you with me on the shape, the way that's drawn? It's, right, it looks like the letter J. And so, Our friend Paul Miller, who some of you know, and he used to go to church here with his wife, Jill, and he's taught a number of classes here in the past, came up with this concept of the J curve. Now, for some of you who are into economics, that's also a term used to talk about financial theory. We're not talking about that. So Paul's using this to describe dying and rising with Jesus in everyday life. This is the book that came out a few months ago. It's wonderful. And you don't need a whole book to understand it, because if you can see the concept of it, then you start to realize that it's not just what happens when you start the Christian life in your baptism, And it's not just what you do when you end your physical life, die, and look forward to a new body at the resurrection when Jesus returns. It's also what you go through every day with what he calls many deaths and many resurrections. I quote him, the normal Christian life, Repeatedly reenacts the dying and rising of Jesus. Paul says, I call it the J curve because, like the letter J, Jesus' life first went down into death, down into death, and then went up into resurrection. It's a great concept, because we can all understand this, right? And, and I want you to see that it's not just Peter who, here's another way to see it, Jesus, us. Uh, take a look here at the scriptures that we've looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 2, where Peter, watch how he joins this. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, undeserved, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Or here's one other example, and there's others that I'm not talking about this morning. In chapter 4, a few weeks ago, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. There's something going on here. These are not random bad things that are happening just to you. And if only they would stop, you would be happy. You see what he says? No, you should be happy, you should be joyful, because you are part of, you are in Christ, and the suffering of the Savior is now being experienced by you. His J-curve was redeeming and atoning Our J-curve is participatory, and it changes us. Think about that as we wrap it up. How does the J-curve change? So, I don't know, let's say kids, let's say that one of your friends borrows your bike. You ever share your bike and let's say they use it and they give it back and you notice that the back tire is kind of soft and after one day it's totally flat so what do you do and what how do you think about that how do you think about your friend how do you think about the flat tire What's going on in your heart with God and your friend and your mom and dad? Can you see how what sounds like a random bad thing that happens is actually an opportunity when you go down the J to see what is God up to so that you can rise with him? So are you going to be mean to your friend because he returned the bike with a flat tire? Which would be kind of the normal thing to do, right? You need to fix it. What did you? Or are you going to stop? Are you going to die, as it were, to those wrong feelings, those sinful feelings, and say, God, how do you want me to treat my friend? Maybe I need to talk to my mom and dad about getting it fixed. It's a moment that will change you. Or let's say you take the Grecos up on safe families. You know, when I first heard it, I thought, "Eh, I wish my wife and I were 30 years younger. I'd love to consider that. And then Katie said to me, hold it. It's not just for young families, because there's all sorts of ways that people can support those young families that are actually on the front doing this kind of help to people. So, when you were hearing that, what was, you know, were you thinking, my budget is full? Actually, I'm over budget, either in money or time or energy. I don't have energy. For I don't know. I'm just asking. I ask myself this. I haven't even talked to my wife about it yet. What could we do? Should I even talk about it? (laughs) But you see, that moment becomes an opportunity for me to die to my desires, unless they're God's desires, and rise with new life. And in that moment of wrestle and death and suffering, I change. Well, let's talk about one more. Spouses. Um, Not everyone has one here. I know that. But let me just talk to married couples for a moment. If your spouse says words to you that hurt, do you just instinctively defend yourself or lash out Or look for the list that you can use against them because they've got their list, you've got your list, and we've we've seen this movie before, and it doesn't end well. Or does that become an opportunity for you to stop and die? And as you're dying, pray and ask, are those words true? If they're not, what could I say that will be healing and Jesus-centered? And what does that look like for my marriage and this relationship that God has given to me? And some of you, frankly, need some help, some real help there. I'm bringing this up because next month, during the uh, adult Sunday school hour, we're offering a 10-week course for couples who want help in marriage our elders will lead the class it's a video series maybe you've seen it promoted and you will see it promoted i really urge you to go to that class and learn what it means to die to yourself and live and find how god will meet you there now do you see how i could i could keep going i have to stop but do you see i could start to take examples from each one of our lives Because every minute of every day of the week, we're faced with, that's not my will. Hmm, God, yours be done. Does that sound like someone else? Paul Miller says, during the final 24 hours of Jesus' life, he washed feet rebuked betrayers, sweated blood, forgave enemies, cared for his mother, and received death. That's how strangers love from the margins. We're not good at it, but we can be better at it because our Savior is there, the God of all grace who called us will restore us. And this is just a little while. Let's learn more and more of what it means to be strangers in the J-curve. I'm going to ask our deacons to come now and serve us as we think about our Lord Jesus. And I will pray now. Lord quiet our hearts and center our thoughts on the cross. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.